Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. A few years ago, the United States tobacco industry paid grocery store and convenience store owners a whopping $7 billion, 80% of their annual advertising budget, just so that they could display their products near cash registers and in eye-level displays. And that's a lot of dough, of course, and it begs the question, what made these marketers so convinced they'd be rewarded for making such a huge and concentrated investment like this? According to my guest today, New York University psychology professor Emily Balsettis, it's because the tobacco industry long ago discovered that what human beings see directly in front of them has tremendous impact on their actions. Said another way, Whatever falls within our visual frame shapes what we do. And whether we realize it or not, just seeing cigarettes at the checkout line becomes a great inducement to buy them. In a TEDx talk that's now been viewed three and a half million times, Emily says most people are entirely unaware that the amount of information that they can see at any given point in time, what they can focus on, is actually relatively small. The outcome of this is that what any of us sees at any given time is always a construct. Our minds fill in the gaps and make sense of everything that we're seeing. And this means that human perception is actually an entirely subjective experience. As we're about to discuss in greater detail, Emily's research proves highly successful people actually see the world very differently. Consciously or unconsciously, they've learned to transcend the limitations of normal human perception, by altering their focus, widening and narrowing their view, and framing things up in far more empowering ways. In effect, they've learned how to leverage their own perception gap to great advantage and to know exactly how to do all of these things at just the right moments. The goal of today's podcast, then, is to teach you these very same visual tactics, ones you can go on to use to more positively shape how you see and interpret the world. As quick background, Emily just published her first book called Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World, and we're about to dig deeply into that. She earned her BA degree from the University of Nebraska, where she was a region scholar, and her PhD from Cornell University, where she held a SAGE fellowship. And with that as an introduction, let me welcome you to the podcast, Emily. Good, thank you. Well, let me get started here. I want to get right into your research, and your book features some personal stories, which I found interesting. You don't often see the personalization that you put into this book, and it included a, a tale of how you not only committed to learning to play the drums, but specifically perform a drum solo in front of friends and family. And struck me as I was reading it that you have a busy life as a new mom and a professor and a wife. And so I made me wonder, and I think you kind of articulated it in the book, but I think it would help our audience to know from the beginning. Tell us why you took this on and why you thought it was so important to include it in the book. Sure. Thanks. The real answer is that I decided to take on playing drums because I wanted to be more interesting. I felt like in my son's first couple months of his life that I was really losing myself in my new role. And there's some aspects to that that I really like. I liked this new title and all of the responsibilities that come with that. But I just felt like that when people were coming to visit, meet our son, Maddie, for the very first time and asking how are things going, I had very little else to comment on in our conversations and the size of his onesie he was now wearing or how much poop I took out of a diaper in the last day. 
And that was really discordant with what I wanted to be and how I thought of myself. I really felt like I'm just too boring of a person. And I wanted something that I could talk about that I could at least have for myself, even if I was never good enough to talk about it, that would carve out some time for just me. So that's the real motivation for it. But when I thought about it, bigger than that, what are some of the bigger challenges or or reasons that I wanted to take this on was that in this new capacity, being a mom, but also having a pretty intensive research career as a professor at a university, that I needed to figure out how to get all of the things done in my day that were required of me with far less time than all of those things would actually take. So figuring out how to juggle all the different parts of me would now really be challenged. And and it was a challenge I was excited to take on. And I think even more excited to take it on when I added that one last little thing that was of my own choosing. Choosing for myself to try to learn how to play drums was sort of like the needle on the top of the haystack. Now I would really need to figure out what's going to be effective for me to meet all of the challenges that would be put on me in a day. I think that is what inspired me to actually try these tactics out on myself that I write about in the book. So what I'm hearing is, and this didn't come through in the book, is that you're actually saying that you already were feeling somewhat stressed to incorporate all the different obligations that you have in your life. And a strategy that you gave yourself in order to achieve everything you needed to achieve was to actually add something additional into the mix. Is that right? That is what I'm saying. And maybe that was a mistake. It probably was a mistake, but it's what I did. (laughs) But I think also owning that, knowing that this is a to-do list item that I chose to put on there, that's there really for no other reason than to be fun for me, was what pushed me over the edge to realize like, in order to accomplish this thing that I want to do and all those things that I have to do, I'm going to have to figure out a better strategy than what I was using before. So the name of the song is, I'm going to include this here for the audience to hear, because I think many of them be familiar with it, is I Don't Want to Lose Your Love Tonight. That's the chorus line. It's actually called Your Love by a band called The Outfield. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in your writing of the book, you chose to include this. So this wasn't just, I want to add this into the mix and master something new and broaden my current personality in terms of being a new mom and being reduced to sort of the banality of what you were describing. There was a reason why you included the story in the book, and I'm hoping you can kind of set the stage for us as we discuss the rest of it, how you chose to include that and why. Yeah, I came upon this song not of my own doing, but my husband brought it to my attention, and he was the one who suggested that this be the song for me. And we got to that place because in choosing what song I wanted to take on, I committed what I also tell people is the first mistake of goal setting. What I decided for myself before having told my husband about it was that I wanted to learn a song from U2. And I thought I was being really cheeky and choosing a song that was sort of similar in its drumline to Bolero. It was a repetitive sort of lick that went on for four minutes. I thought, if all I need to do is learn how to play this one lick and then just repeat that consistently, then I can play a U2 song. But all I've really done is learn about a 10-second lick that I'm going to repeat over and over. And I told him that. I said, I want to learn this song as a U2 song. And and he didn't laugh because he's a lovely human being and loves me. But he suggested that that might be a little bit tricky. I watched it on YouTube, how drummers actually perform it. And he was right. It was way too challenging as the first song to try to learn on drums. 
which I should have been able to figure out all along, right? There's a reason why U2 has had staying power over so many decades because they're amazing and nothing that they perform is that easy. But he suggested they take on something that was maybe a bit more manageable as a first song, but would still be fun to learn and would still be a good show if that's where this went. And so he suggested this song, this British rock band out of the 80s that had this song. It ended up being their top hit out of their career. It hit number six on the UK Billboard's Top 100. (laughs) I asked him if it was cool. He said, not really, which I thought really resonated with my personality, (laughs) that it didn't quite hit the mark. It wasn't quite cool. Cool has never been a word that people have used to describe me. So in some sense, I felt like we were kindred spirits. And after learning or trying to learn this song for the first six months, I heard it re-released decades later as a jingle for dryer sheets on television. And I thought, yes, this is the song for me. (laughs) Well, do me a favor, Emily, as we discuss the rest of your book, if you can weave in any connection, because you do that very well throughout the book, the the reminders of how you went to master the song and so forth and the actual performance that you gave. So we'll move on, but I'm hoping you'll bring this back up as it's appropriate. So your book starts off with this assertion that wherever we focus our attention ends up having a huge impact on our daily actions. And in some respects, it strikes me as just being you know, blatantly obvious. But your book title implies highly successful people have ways of seeing the world in far more effective ways that lead them to making consistently better choices and decisions. So let's start there. Give us a wide view of what your research revealed and the big picture of why reshaping how we see the world holds so many benefits. We might say that our eyes are a powerful tool in shaping our behavior. In fact, I do say that. And that might seem obvious when somebody puts that phrase on the table. But at any given moment of any given day, we might not realize how influential our visual experiences actually are. We take for granted our sight. We're not really cognizant of what it is that we're taking in or more importantly, what it is that's not making it in to our conscious experience of what it is that we're seeing. And I think that's what makes this phrase, our eyes are a powerful tool in shaping our behavior, perhaps not as intuitive as it might seem. There's this concept called the unknown unknowns. We don't know what we don't know. So if there is something that we've misperceived in the environment or that we've seen in a way that actually is advantageous, we might not realize in that moment the alternative. There's times like you can think of in a conversation with somebody when you've misheard them, they'll tell you that that's not what they said or you heard it the wrong way. Or maybe we're feeling some texture with our fingertips and and we can't quite pick out whether that's cashmere or merino wool And we can look at the tag and have that misconception corrected for us. But rarely do we have the experience where we're looking at something, we think we see it one way, and somehow it magically transforms before our very eyes to have a misperception be corrected. And that's what I think is special about vision compared to other ways that we come to understand our world. There's a correction system or process that's built into all the other ways that we get thoughts or information into our minds, but rarely does that happen with our visual experiences. And so that might be why we aren't aware of how we're seeing something in a way that helps us or that we're seeing something in a way that actually disadvantages us. But some people seem to have an intuitive sense about at least part of that phenomenon. 
And some of the successful people that I talk about in this book have cultivated a habit that sort of takes advantage of the strength of a visual experience that they're having. So an example, Giorgio Piccoli, he's a friend of mine. In his mid-20s, he created a company that is really amazingly successful, especially for how early in his life he got this company off the ground. Last year, it brought in $20 million in profits. It has facilities that are integral for this company in all the continents but Antarctica. It's been financially profitable, but also socially responsible. With every sale, it supports the artists that have generated this work in the first place. And a strategy that he uses to cultivate the creativity that would be required of such fast and important innovation is that he gives his brain a workout every day. So every day, he tries to generate a list of 10 things. And his instructions to himself stay that vague, just a list of 10 things. And he tries to put some challenges in there, like the company mashup. If I could choose two companies and put them together in the room, what sort of problems might these companies solve? Sort of like celebrity hookup names. <laughs> if Rosetta Stone and Travelocity got together, what sorts of cultural misunderstandings might these two companies or this merged company be able to eliminate? for example. And he does this, generate this list of 10 things every day. And he's done that for the last five years, every single day. And he considers it a workout for his brain. And I asked him, do these ideas ever become lucrative? Are they ever sort of the genesis of your next big idea for how to innovate your own company? And he said, rarely, no, for the most part, no. Then I said, well, why do you do it? And he said, because I think it keeps me sharp. I think it keeps me thinking. It keeps me aware and it keeps me practicing. And I said, well, if it does that, then why do you have to write them down? Why do you have literally your list of lists in your phone taking up so much space? And why do you spend the time to write it down? Maybe you don't have to. And he said, of course you have to. Of course you have to write them down. That's the key to this. That's the key to this. Why is that the key to this? And he said, because I need to see it before my very eyes. I need to see the work that I put into this. I need to see the product of my brainstorming. And that's, and from his perspective, where that power from the creative process comes from. Is that a productivity validation that he's getting by writing it down? Or is there something going on in his brain that he's aware of that makes him want to write it down? In my perspective, it might have, in part, it might be explained by the idea of streaks and the kind of people that might call themselves streakers, not the kind that expose themselves. Or, <laughs> no, not that kind of streaker, but people who have maintained a habit over time and they have created a streak for themselves, like runners. There's a big community of runners that would define themselves by that quality that they've run every day for the last 35 years of their life. And so the idea of breaking that streak is a really maybe scary one or discordant with their sense of self. And I think for Giorgio, it might be the same thing, that this writing one list of 10 things, those concrete numbers for himself, one list, 10 things every single day and having done that for over five years has created a streak and a habit that is important to, to his thoughts on innovation. And so by seeing what he has created, seeing his list of lists reminds him of that streak and of that habit and more importantly, of the bigger goals that that process is satisfying. 
And that is probably part of the motivation to keep him going and to continue this sort of mental exercise, this brainstorming habit that he thinks is important for creativity. You mentioned that you did a survey and asked people if you could lose one sense what one sense would you not want to lose? And that principally people said the last thing on earth they would want to lose is their sight. So do you think people are connected to how important vision is? What what was your takeaway from that survey? It's the one sense that they feel like is really invaluable. We are so dependent on our eyes and seeing. We prioritize what comes in through our eyes and how we're trying to understand the world through our eyes more than any other way that we come to understand the world. I think it was a true testament to the importance that we place on our visual experience above and beyond any other way we come to explore the spaces around us. Well, interestingly, in the context of that, so we value our vision, but in your book, you say that our visual experience are actually often misrepresentations. So what we're seeing isn't what we're actually seeing, right? And so I guess I want to ask you, tell us why our eyes and perception actually deceive us. How does that actually happen? And give us some examples. I think just to put the idea out there, I use the word deception and misperception, but I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way. Those words commonly do mean that. We say miss and we mean mistake, but I don't mean it here. I don't think that it's a mistake that we necessarily see the world in a way that's different than what it is. Now, sometimes it might be a mistake and sometimes it might bring about consequences that we don't like or are unintended in harmful ways. But it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, some of our misperceptions or these self-deceptions are actually the basis for some of our strongest motivations and can help us sustain progress or get us sort of off the starting blocks in the first place by having that misperception or that deceptive experience. So what might look impossibly far away to one person, it might look like something that I just couldn't possibly take on, actually might be a motivating challenge in somebody else's eyes. I mean, we can talk about that metaphorically, but we also can talk about it quite literally. So I conducted research looking at patterns of exercise and why some people can sustain exercise and others can't. And I found that visual experience was concretely, not just metaphorically, connected to success and failure. Some people who literally saw that distance as shorter were able to run faster, walk farther, go out for uh, an exercise more often in the weeks that followed and could sustain that habit better than people who saw the very same distance, but as greater than others did. What's the leadership takeaway from that insight? That sometimes when we have a goal that's set to be achieved for ourselves at quite a far off distance in time, maybe we're setting a quarterly goal or a yearly goal, for some people, that amount of time might just seem so extremely far away that they have a hard time perhaps connecting today's choices with that far off distant future objective. And so in a sense, being able to find ways to contract that temporal distance might produce a motivation or a driving force that can help produce better choices today to accomplish tomorrow or next year's goal. How do I make that shift? How do I change my mindset? Well, 
it can be about mindset or it can be about visual experience. So by narrowing our cognitive focus of attention, by trying to remove the distractions that might pull away from our efforts towards this one goal, we can contract both that temporal space, the physical space, or the perceived extremity of the challenge that we're taking on. So that cognitive focus on the objective that we're trying to work towards can help us avoid multitasking. It can help us remain committed and focused and make decisions that have a more advantageous outcome for that goal. Can you give me an example of like a situation where I would apply that? So you've got two different managers and one person sees it as oppressive and unachievable and another one says, I can keep the prize in mind here and go forward with this. Maybe give us a clearer example of this. So we might set a goal that's meant to be achieved far off in the future for what might seem like impossibly far off in the future for some people or just not relevant to the here and now. And I think that that's important, especially if you're in a leadership position where you get to craft what those goals are for yourself or for those around you. And in fact, that is important because it helps guide why what we're doing today matters and what is the objective that we're trying to achieve. So making explicit what that long-term goal is, is important as it sort of coalesces everybody's effort and points people in the right direction. But that's not enough to just stop with setting that far off distant goal. We have to break it down also into how that goal can be achieved and set more sort of manageable milestones that everybody is working to aim to accomplish. Now that gets talked about a lot. Don't just set a lofty goal, but break it down into sub goals. That's important. And I'm saying that we should do that. But the third part is that we also need to take a moment to foreshadow what might derail us from the process. So what are the possible obstacles that we might experience along the way and be as concrete and listing those as maybe we are when we set that long term goal or the micro goals that we hope to accomplish as milestones along the way. And that might be counterintuitive, this idea of what I call foreshadowing failure, um, because in some sense it goes against maybe an American culture of accepting the possibility that we might not hit our goal, that we might stumble along the way, that we might experience failure. But that's an important part of goal setting, actually, is thinking about the challenges we might experience, but also coming up with what those solutions will be. So that as we are working towards that longer term goal, we know what the first 25% will look like. Where is it that we aim to be at the end of that first 25%? And if we experience an obstacle, we don't have to then invest resources Mm -hmm. to try to figure out what are we going to do? We already know what we're going to do should we hit this roadblock. Oh, I think it's brilliant. And I think it's realistic. And it allows you to quickly pivot instead of saying, oh, my God, now what do we do? It's actually, I mean, it's a brilliant leadership practice. And I'm glad you mentioned it, because I think sometimes we just, we're so optimistic, and we're so excited about our plan that we don't anticipate that our plan may not be perfect. So I love that. Thank you. Glad I asked that question. I want to dig into your four strategies. These, at the core of your book, these four strategies are intended to literally reshape the way we see the world. And we're going to take them one at a time, but let me just, you know, for our audience, before we go on, list them. So you have four, and they're called narrow focus. And this is followed by materializing, framing, and having a wide bracket. 
So let's take them one at a time and we'll start with narrow focus. Tell us what you mean by narrowing in and perhaps tell us about the exercise, I love this, that social psychologist Hal Hirschfield did to change how young students perceive their immediate choices. Yeah, the idea of narrow focus is we can take the very visual definition of it and imagine that we put blinders on. Somehow we have glasses that we can affix that rather than uh, covering our eyes on the front, sort of put on shades on the side so that literally we're not seeing what might otherwise lay in our peripheral vision. We're focused on the future. We're looking forward. We can think about that conceptually as well in terms of our cognitive focus. Again, staying narrowly focused on what that finish line or what that goal looks like for us. And we can cognitively try to keep out the distractions that might pull away at our time and resources. Now, Hal Hirschfeld is really interested in understanding this idea of investing for retirement and doing that with younger people. There's lots of financial analytics done to show that if we invest now in very early years of our life, that we will be far better off in our retirement years than if we invested more but started later in life. And that's a challenge that most younger people have a hard time with when they're looking at their first salary, trying to imagine setting aside 20% of that or even 10% of that for what seems to be a very different person. Like that's not even me. The retired me is not even me. That's somebody that I don't relate to at all. It can be really difficult to do today what would be very beneficial 40 years from now. And regardless of whether we're talking about retirement or any other goal, I think the problem is the same, that when we have something that we're working towards that won't be realized until some point in time that just doesn't seem relevant today, it can be challenging to carve out the time or the resources to work on that when there might be more pressing challenges that are pulling at us right now. So what he did in this study to try to connect young people's current self with this very seemingly distant, far-off future self was take a picture of them and morph that with a photograph of an older person so that the image that was produced that these college students saw was their own likeness, but with slightly grayer hair, a little bit more wrinkles, maybe not as high of cheeks on their face. But it was still definitely them, but just what they might look like in 40 years' time. And then he gave them the choice after seeing that picture to imagine what they would do if they received a financial windfall, an extra $1,000 that they didn't have in their pocket before because of some good fortune. And how much of that would they use to address their current needs, like pay bills that need to be addressed or set aside some for rent? Or most interest to him was how much would they set aside to put into a retirement account? And he found that compared to people who just looked at pictures of their current self, those that could create this visual representation could see themselves in the future, set aside far more of that windfall to go towards their retirement account. And when they unpacked it, it was because they had now had this connection between who I am today and who I will be and where I want to be in what might seem to be too far a time in the future. Great. I love that. Let's move on to the next one, which is materializing. And the general idea that by materializing, you're saying that by visualizing the concrete steps that we'll take on the path toward achieving our goals, we increase the likelihood of succeeding. And you kind of hinted at this a second ago. And you mentioned in your book, Vision Boards, and I just, somebody recommended that I read Jen Sincero's book called You're a Badass. And she urges people to make them make these vision boards. And she says, 
I'm recommending them, but I don't know why they work, but they seem to work wonderfully for people. So I wanted to ask you, do they work? And if so, why do they work? So I think the answer to that question really lies in how we define success and what we mean by do they work. So as a quick answer, yes, they work. They can help us figure out what we really want and they can help that stay salient and on the top of our mind if we decide to display that vision board in a place that maybe we come across in our everyday life, like next to the mirror in the bathroom, for instance, or on our office wall or on the side of our computer screen. So they can help us figure out what is really important for us and serve as that sort of overarching goal for our efforts. But they're not going to help us necessarily to get there. Because again, I think it's not enough to just simply put out there what it is that we want for ourselves and what our goal is. But we need to engage in these additionally important aspects of goal setting even before we start out on the path towards accomplishing it. We need to come up with our micro goals or sort of milestones that we expect to meet along the way so we can assess our own progress. We need to come up with concrete steps that we can take to advance our cause, but also foreshadow the failures and come up with solutions to obstacles that we'll likely experience so that we're not faced with having to both solve a problem and figure out the solution to that problem, all while trying to still make forward progress on our goals. And vision boards are not necessarily designed to help us with those additional important stages of goal setting. They're really good for helping us define where we want to be, But unless we also focus on creating imagery within those boards that tell us how are we going to get there, which steps are integral, and what are the ways that we might fail, and what will we do if that happens, then they may not actually serve that greater purpose of pushing us forward. Have you just described the definition of materializing? I think so. So by materializing, I mean literally creating visual iconography that is relevant to these important aspects of goal setting, that we do the things, we prioritize the things that we see. That's why we keep calendars and we write things in those calendars, because if we don't write it down, we likely forget to do it. And that's the concept of materializing is that we're more effective when we make something be visual. We materialize it and make it concrete for ourselves That's something that I did when I was trying to learn how to play drums, actually, is well before there was a show, well before there were any fans. I'm not even sure there are fans now of my performance, but before I had any idea whether there would be, I made posters of what my show would be. And I created an image of myself holding drumsticks in a very graphic, artsy sort of way to inspire myself towards what it was that I was hoping to do. I put them up on my own wall. I didn't share them with anybody. It was a little bit too embarrassing. It felt kind of narcissistic to have made these posters myself of my own face. (laughs) But it was something that, that helped inspire me. It was a materialization or a visualization of where I hoped to be in a couple months time. I think that's wonderful. As I was reading your book, it made me think of something that happened to me. This idea of materializing, literally materializing. I decided I wanted to, and it's very interesting because it started off with the belief system that you started off talking about earlier, which is seeing something as unachievable where other people could see it as easily achievable. I had always convinced myself that running a marathon was absolutely an impossibility for me. And for that reason, I said, I'm going to run one. 
And so I bought a book by a guy named Ambie Burfoot, who happens to be a world-class marathon runner, won the Boston Marathon, and was the editor for Runner's World. And he wrote this book, and it's very detailed on when you run, how far you run, and incredibly disciplined, all the way up until the last chapter, which literally says, here's what you lay out the night before, here's when you go to bed, here's what you eat. I mean, it's really detailed. So I followed it methodically and was crossing it off and had my complete details of how many miles I ran relative to what he told me to do. And so I got to New York and I'm walking down the street. You know, it's New York City and it's right out in front of the Javits Center where there were, you know, 30,000 people getting ready to run this race. And who do I run into but Airbnb Burfoot? So I thought, wow, like, you know, this is like a manifestation of me thinking about this guy every day for the last six months. So it works what you're describing. That's crazy karma too, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was. It was quite a great great experience. I also think it's really interesting and motivating too how going to watch the marathon and like standing on the sidelines can also be really motivating because what you see is just, it's not just the stereotype of what a marathon runner looks like that is running the race. There is all forms of physical shape and size of ability and disability that are competing in the marathons and being able to see that for yourself Self, I think is also really motivating and encourages a lot of other people to try what might seem like an impossibility otherwise, when they can visually see the diversity of the people that are able to take on and master that kind of a challenge. Totally agree with you. Completely agree with you. And you also triggered something else. I went to get, you know, some running clothes right before the race. And as I was walking out the door, the guy at the Runner's World store in San Diego said, put your name on your shirt. And I said, why? And he said, because people will see it and they'll call out your name and encourage you. And Mm -hmm. when you get to the mile 20 and you want the thing to be over and you're running through Central Park and people are going, you can do it, Mark. I mean, it never would have crossed my mind to give other people a visual cue like that, but it proved to be invaluable. I mean, I'm so grateful to those people, but it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't given them the visual cue. Right. Right. Let's move on to framing. You say that what we see around us triggers our actions. So tell us about this and give us some ideas on how leaders can shape their own working environment and that of their employees to keep whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish, their highest priorities, front of mind. Yeah, this relates to a psychological concept called automaticity, and it's that our actions can be guided automatically by our perceptual experiences. Maybe a less jargony sounding word is called spark. We can visually spark our own behaviors by the things that we set up as sort of cues in our environment. So there's, you know, an example of Google that maybe a lot of people, well, what people know about Google and Facebook, or that's often talk about is the food, how amazing the food is. And I had my own obsession for a while and dug into it only to be really disappointed for my own company that I work for. We don't have the scallops that are cooked fresh to order. We don't have (laughs) the taco trucks out front, but Google and Facebook do. And they also have snacks, right? Snacks get talked about a lot. And those snacks are meant to do a couple things, provide a sense of community because people gather around the snack stations and have some quick chat, maybe meet a new contact, start up a conversation with somebody from a different department. It provides a sense of community or caring for a community by offering those quick treats without people having to leave and they can stay in house. 
But the unintended consequence of all of these snacks, when Google started to look into it, was that they were making their employees unhealthy. Employees might go for a bottle of water and they would get that bottle of water, but they'd also grab a handful of M&Ms or a candy bar and were actually you know, putting away far more calories than that they had intended or that they had sort of allocated as a part of their own plans for healthy eating. So what was meant perhaps to be a nice perk to create a sense of community was actually putting the financial health of their own employees at risk. And they started to do some of their own investigations into why that is. And it had to do with literally the idea of insight in mind or insight in mouth. We made some quick changes. They didn't take away the snacks and they didn't take away the stations, but they started to hide the unhealthier snacks in more opaque containers like frosted glass or put the sugary beverages like sodas or juices on lower shelves or further back on those shelves so that they weren't the first thing that people saw as they passed through that space. And they tracked what were the snacks that were eaten. As the pantry attendants restocked the shelves from one week to the next, they paid attention to what snacks were being eaten and which ones were being left on the shelf. And by simply changing that visual experience, making the less healthy snacks harder to see or harder to find, not quite as easily in sight, they reduced people's interest in taking them at all and and reduced the caloric consumption of the employees. So I get the visual implications of that, I, but I wondered in reading that why they just didn't eliminate some of the very you know high caloric, high sugar, high fat kinds of treats. So... Why, why hide them if you don't want people to really have them? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes radical change actually could bring more attention to an issue that might be helpful. So there could be backlash, first of all. There was mm-hmm, this thing right. that has become part of our norm and our culture, and now all of a sudden you've taken it away. Yep. And if that's done without explanation, that might produce some backlash effects. And it might bring to conscious awareness something that might be better process sort of a non-conscious level. We're not talking subliminal. I mean, people can still see that there are snacks there. It's just they may not have realized that what it was that their eyes landed on first sort of changed what their tummy was telling them about whether they wanted it or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But by putting that all out in the forefront, there may have been reactants. People might start overthinking their decisions. They might start justifying why it is actually okay that they eat a candy bar every day because their breakfast is kind of slim or they've skipped their breakfast. So this wasn't something that was part of the investigation, and it's not part of the conversation about the changes for why these changes happened the way that they did. But that would be part of my guess, that there is perhaps a lack of thought that goes into what we snack on, or that might be contributing to why people chose some snacks rather than others at Google. But we can take advantage of that sort of lack of thought to create healthier choices if we visually stack the deck in that favor. I think that's a very, very astute insight. So thank you. I haven't asked you, what stimulated your interest in this? How did you come to do this research and end up writing this book? I know it's a little bit off of of where we are right now, but I'm just curious. It really stemmed from some of the work on exercise that I talk about in the book. And the bigger idea that people have goals, we perpetually have health goals that we're working towards achieving. People set New Year's resolutions, and even if you don't call them that, most people have points in their life when they set a new intention for themselves. And the number one most commonly cited goal that people set is related to their health. 
And there's a lot of work done to try to help people in that regard. And a lot of it comes down to strategies that I think in the long run aren't that effective. So some of the things that people talk about using the most because they're either taught it or they think it'll be effective is talking to themselves in encouraging ways, continually reminding themselves of what their bigger goal is, checking in daily or more often than that to determine whether they're making progress, stepping on the scale every day. And the strategies that people report using the most are ones that are really cognitively taxing. They require a lot of sustained commitment themselves to assess progress, to monitor progress, to maintain that progress. And I think that that is actually depleting and leads us to perhaps be disappointed in ourselves too early. And we haven't given ourselves the luxury of time to explore whether there is progress. And when we self-assess and and feel that disappointment, we throw in the towel mm-hmm. uh, maybe when we, sh- we shouldn't. And that's why people continue to set the same intention from one year to the next. It's not that they don't care. It's not that they're not trying. It's not that they're doing something malicious or um, self-destructive. It's that the strategies that people use as their go-to strategies are not sustainable. And that is sort of the idea that sparked my interest in trying to understand what are some of those things that are having an impact outside of our awareness that we don't even know to target And then is there something that we can do that is sustainable, that doesn't require a great investment in time or money or resources or cognitive effort that can help target that influence that's having an impact without our awareness? Thank you. So going back to framing, (laughs) do you have any recommendations, specific recommendations that managers can how they could actually use this information to create visual frames or sparks in their working environment, not just for themselves, but also for the people that they lead? Sure. I know there's a large conversation around sustainability efforts in organizations. And I think we can come up with a concrete example within that space of sustainability. There was a large study done of a telecommunications company in the Netherlands, and they set as one of their most important goals for the year to increase the amount of paper that they recycle. And what they realized was that by having trash cans at every person's desk, that that was just a very easy way for people to dispose of the paper that they had. Paper cups, extra paper, the trash can is right there and it's in sight and so it gets used. And it takes more effort to walk further down to the recycling bins. So first step was, well, let's make recycling bins as visually accessible as trash cans are. And let's tell people that our goal is sustainability and that we want to increase the amount of paper that we throw into recycling rather than the garbage cans. But that was helpful, but it wasn't enough. So it did increase the rate that people recycled. Having that visual of the recycling can increased recycling. Removing the spark that was producing part of the problem, removing the garbage can was also useful. So now there's recycling available and you have to walk further away for Mm -hmm. garbage. But then also having people set the intention for themselves. So writing down on a scrap of paper that hopefully they later recycled. (laughs) When I have a paper cup, I'll put it in the recycling bin. So sort of coupling that individualization of the larger organizational goal with my own personal intention and then Mm -hmm. creating the visual that would sort of spark that action in the moment was quite effective for having this company meet their sustainability goals over the next couple of months. Wow, that's fantastic. Let's move to wide brackets. 
in your words, white bracket framing pulls us out of focusing on the present and helps us make decisions that better align with our long-term goals. I think, you know, one thing that just struck me is that I think people think they do this. So I'm curious as to whether or not you think we all do this regularly, but we've already discussed narrow framing. So tell us how to know when the right time is to take a wider view of things and how doing so will keep us avoiding temptations in the present moment that we're going to end up regretting later. You know, those distractions that take us away from the things that we're trying to accomplish in the long term. Mm -hmm. I think a wide bracket is quite effective when we need to discover a new path forward. And we talk about this. This might be the most obvious answer to the question. We need to take a moment, take a step back and see it from a bigger perspective. That's when a wide bracket is going to be really useful. Assessing the multiple forces that are drawing on our time or our resources, the multiple goals that as an organization or as a person we might hold simultaneously and trying to consider them simultaneously and how they can be best met simultaneously is really important. Another point where wide brackets are quite effective is when we need to discover patterns in our own behavior. So a strategy that I used when I was trying to figure out how am I spending my time? It just feels like I don't have enough of it. And where is it being inappropriately used or where can I be more efficient with my time? For two weeks, I kept track of it. And that took time and it wasn't an easy challenge to take on. But I was tracking when did I pull aside from what it was that I was focusing on and do something else in that moment? What was I doing with the time outside of work? How was I spending it? How much time was I spending practicing the drums every day? And I was keeping a pretty detailed log of what I did with my time. And then after that two-week period, I reviewed my data on myself. And one of the things I was looking for was, well, how much time did I actually put in and how many days during this two-week period of time did I sit down at the drums and play? And what I discovered about myself was very different than my day-to-day experience of what I thought I was doing. When I thought that I just didn't have enough time, looking at how I actually spent it across that two-week period gave me insight into where am I using it ineffectively or inefficiently, and that awareness helps me to make better choices moving forward. So what I thought was true about how I spent my day and how I spent my time didn't align with what was actually true. And I could only see those patterns or the routines once I took a step back and sort of saw my allocation across a two-week period and took on that wide bracket mentality. Do you mind sharing what you discovered? So what was your expectation going in and what did you find in terms of how you were using your time and perhaps even not using it effectively or even wasting it? Yeah. So I thought that I wasn't practicing enough because I felt like I'm still so far away from being able to play a show on these drums. This is not performance ready. And so my thought was, it's because I'm not practicing enough. And when I looked back and saw what I was actually doing over that two week period of time, I still found six opportunities to practice. And knowing that like, I'm not a drummer, my goal is not to become a professional drummer. This is supposed to be my hobby for fun. That was actually the appropriate amount of time that I should be allocating towards those efforts. So from one day to the next, I just felt like this nagging sense of irresponsibility with how I was approaching this fun hobby, supposedly fun hobby. But in hindsight or with reflection and being able to see that broader period of time, I could contextualize my progress on that front relative to all the other demands that are put upon me in my daily life. 
So that's one thing is that actually helps reduce some anxiety I had about something that was personally important to me because I realized that I'm on par with what I should have as my goal for this project. The other thing is that I just realized that there's more time in my morning than I realize before I get to work. And it's not to say that I should just for myself, I, I wasn't going to start my day sooner. I still can only get into the office by nine o'clock because of when I drop my son off at school. But there's time in the morning for me to do things also that will bring more balance to my life. And that was something that only by looking back and seeing what was I doing with those two hours before my kids drop off time and, and I make it to the office. And what do I accomplish in that time? And just being less haphazard and more intentional about what I do with that chunk of time. That was a point where I realized I could be more efficient with managing the competing demands of my day. That's wonderful. Emily, if you've heard any of our previous podcasts, you know that we take a break from the discussion. We move into what we call the heartbeat round. I have about a dozen questions that I'd like to ask you, but these questions, your goal is going to be to answer them quickly and instinctively. In other words, in a heartbeat. You ready to play? Mm -hmm. All right, good. The band, singer, composer, or musician who makes you see life most clearly? Well, with this experience in gonzo journalism that I embarked on, I'd have to say it's the outfield. Oh, there you go. Was it intentional that you published your book in 2020? No, that was just lucky. I would have published it well before my son was born if it was left up to me, but the opportunity came now and it just, it took a lot longer to come to fruition. Very good. Actually, I think I put this question in just to amuse myself, the 2020 vision thing. So (laughs) if you could look out your window of your apartment and have a view of any place in the world, what would it be? The Mediterranean. I love the vastness and the sense of humility it brings and the clarity of that water that I think metaphorically is always what I'm trying to get for myself. One lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life. That sometimes we just won't know the answer or the right way forward, and that's okay, too. A cultural value you believe every organization should have. The journey matters as much as the destination. Magazine or newspaper you never miss reading. The New York Times. I don't know how long you have to live in New York to call yourself a New Yorker, but I wasn't born here, but I've lived here longer than any place in my adult life, and it's just par for the course. (laughs) Skill improvement you're working on right now. My son is three, so we describe this stage as a hybrid of taming a lion and negotiating with terrorists. (laughs) So the skill I'm working on is patience. Very good. Something you think we all need to do at least once in our life. Flop in a big and public way. I'd love to dig into that with you. I wish I could. (laughs) One visual spark you placed in your new apartment. We spend more time in our son's bedroom than most other places. That's where he wants to play. So we put a giant slide right in the center of his bedroom coming off his loft bed. I'm sorry for the neighbors below, but that's what we did. And it's meant to remind us to prioritize fun and make sure we get a little bit of it in, even when we're just getting out of bed. The quality that derails the most leadership careers, in your opinion? Dogmatism. Being certain that there is a best way forward rather than many ways forward. A book you believe all of us must read. Whatever our public libraries put on the shelves, there's so many perfect books out there that we can all grow when we read. The trait you admire most in other people? Generosity. So those people who metaphorically find ways to open a door, but let others walk through it first. Those are the people who find and make opportunities, but offer those up to other people before taking it for themselves. Wow. And a prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true. Change will happen. Wow. 
I want to tell you, these are inspiring answers. They're really like, I want to go back and re-listen to them because I think they're very, very provocative. So thank you for being so thoughtful with those. That was really wonderful. Those were fun. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So let's go back to our conversation. Sure. So going back to the very beginning of our conversation, when you said, you know, that you were feeling stressed for time and sort of over obligated, and then you insert another task, which is not only to you know, learn how to play the drums, but to actually prove to people that you've learned it by doing some sort of a show, right? So did you discover that by adding in this extra responsibility, this extra task, if you will, it's more ambitious than that and much more fun, but let's call it a task of learning how to play the drums and doing a show, that you actually had more time to do that and all your other things? Was that one of the epiphanies here? Yeah, I think so. And if I'm being honest, I consider myself a pretty internally motivated person. I think a successful academic, in a sense, needs to be that. We don't have a lot of oversight. We sort of pride ourselves in our career of not really having a boss that we're accountable to from one day to the next. And so I think most people that find themselves in a university have an internal drive and also the opportunity to do what it is that we want to do. And I felt that way about myself, too. I felt like you know what, I've decided this for myself. And if it really matters, then I'm going to get it done. And after a couple months, and looking at where did I start? And where am I now after a couple months and seeing just how thin that progress really was, I learned for myself that that probably wasn't enough. Just setting this goal for myself, particularly because it was just a hobby or a fun thing, wasn't enough incentive for me to push it to the top of my own to do list. And so when I was reflecting on this experience after a couple months of trying with my editor of this book, she said to me, Emily, you got to get some skin in the game. You have to do this publicly. You can't just decide for yourself you're going to learn to play drums and then self-assess whether you made it or not. No one's going to (laughs) care. And so what I think that conversation, it was a tough one. She's a powerful, strong woman, but also a great emotional intelligence. What she was able to convey to me was that my own system of accountability wasn't going to do it for me in this instance. And so by sort of creating the gig, making this performance, sending out the invitations, that was an external constraint or an external accountability that isn't part of my everyday, but that for this particular task was really important to include. And maybe most of us wouldn't have applied that goal to ourselves either. You know, it's like the idea of playing drums in front of a family and friends is a little bit terrifying. So that was very good coaching because you said that people wouldn't be interested, i.e. the reader. Right. But you wouldn't have been interested either. If I mean, you probably would have slacked off on this. If you had to let something go within your schedule, it probably would have been the drums if you didn't know you're going to be ultimately accountable to playing in front of people on a certain date. Right. Right. Exactly. And I think it's not even necessarily drums. It's not like I've had this burning desire to Mm -hmm. be a drummer for my entire life. But I think really what this is, you know, an example of is just trying to find balance in our life. And we are just a very driven society. We are driven as individuals to succeed. A motto for a lot of people that we have at least heard, if not embraced in some way, is be all you can be. And I think what happens when we live that lifestyle is that we will maybe more quickly sacrifice the intentions that we set that are just for ourselves than those that have relevance to somebody else. We'll prioritize work over our own maybe personal health. We'll prioritize our responsibilities to our friends and family, maybe over the concerns that we have that are just more personal in nature. 
and I think that's what this challenge really has represented to me is trying to be maybe more concrete or intentional about crafting a more well-balanced life, particularly as life added more on top, as now I got to put on this title of of Mm -hmm. mother on my resume. You trigger the idea of multitasking, and most of us think we're really good at it. So can you settle it once and for all? Are we good at it, and should we do it? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) If I have to answer it in one word, the answer is nope. But of course, it's psychology, which means that the answer is more nuanced. And as a psychologist, I have much more to say on that. But there are some instances, there are some tasks where we can multitask better. And there are some times when we shouldn't be doing it at all. There are pros and cons. There are upsides and downsides of multitasking. So multitasking isn't all bad. In fact, sometimes when we do it, it provides like a cognitive challenge to our brain that energizes us and increases sort of the amount of energy and excitement that we bring to the challenges that we're simultaneously entertaining. So there's a great example of a case study that was done of emergency room doctors at a hospital down in Georgia. And they were looking at how effective were these emergency room doctors at handling their caseloads and how effective and efficient they are. And what they found was that when an emergency room doctor's caseload was pretty low, like there's only maybe one or two patients that they were simultaneously attending to, the amount of time per patient was about 40 minutes or something like that. It took about 40 minutes once they sit down in a hospital bed to win their discharge with a diagnosis and a treatment plan. And you might think that that time would get longer. The time per patient would get longer as the number of people that any one doctor was was seeing increased. And that happened a little bit, but not that much. In fact, the doctors seemed to get more efficient and more effective It was like when there was more challenges placed upon them or their multitasking requirements got greater, they engaged at a higher rate. They were thinking faster. They were trying to find more efficiencies in how they saw one patient and responded to the next. So multitasking in that sense actually increased productivity and efficiency until it got to a specific tipping point. So after doctors had a caseload of about five or six patients, then we see that the beneficial effects of multitasking wore off. And now the amount of time per patient increased substantially. Patients were being discharged more often without a diagnosis and were returning to the emergency room within 24 hours at a higher rate, which implies that perhaps they were misdiagnosed or weren't given a sufficient course of treatment that would remedy whatever it is that they came in in the first place. Or doctors weren't fully focused. Exactly. They weren't able to fully focus. They were spread too thin. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. multitasking can be helpful when we feel understimulated, when it's in an area that we feel a particular expertise in, and it can energize us until we reach some sort of tipping point when it might be cognitive overload. And so from one person to the next, what is that tipping point? Well, it's not for me to say. It should just be something that we can introspect on as an individual and self-diagnose. Do we have expertise here? If yes, then we can take on more simultaneously up until some point. If the answer is no, I don't have expertise here, then we really should try to stay more narrowly focused and rather than working simultaneously, work sequentially through whatever our to-do list has to offer. Well, I think that's going to reassure a lot of people listening to this. So thank you. I mean, you literally said no, and then built a magnificent case for here's how to do it and use it wisely. So thank you for that. 
Emily, I always know going into these conversations that there's going to be so much more in my guest books and their work and research that we're going to have time to discuss. And that's where we are now. So thinking about all the leaders who are listening to you right now, is there some part of your research that you'd really like to punctuate before we go? Any one last final thought? I think an important part of my message here is that these four tools that we've talked about really are tools. We can think of them in that particular sense. So if they were a hammer, we wouldn't want a toolbox only full of hammers. We wouldn't want to approach every single construction project with only a hammer in hand. And the same is true about these strategies that I'm suggesting for how to best pursue our goals. We need a multitude of tools. We need a multitude of strategies for goal pursuit. And we need a flexibility about when we will use one and when we will use another. And so I don't come in heavy and prescribe, this is exactly the tool that you should use exactly in this instance for this particular job. But instead, my approach is to sort of increase the palette that we have available to us to take on these challenges and to encourage an acceptance that maybe this isn't the right tool for the job now, but it's great that we tried this tool out. So I hope to encourage a flexibility with the use of these tools and creativity about when they're applied, but to also offer some suggestions for guidance for when I think one might be more effective than another. I think just having the awareness that there are these ways of seeing that we may not have ever really thought of before. We may have practiced them unknowingly or maybe with mild intention, but knowing that we've got these four tools to use your language is very, very powerful. So thank you for that. And on behalf of my entire audience, thank you so very much for joining me. This was really, really interesting. We covered a lot of ground. And I think if you boil it all down, there's just tremendous insight that I haven't really come across in any of the other guests, So, which is one of the goals for me is to bring on people who see the world differently, if you will. So uh, sorry about that pun, but thank you so very much. Thank you for the opportunity to share this work. I appreciate it. You're very welcome and best of success with the book. Thank you. As we close, I want to thank you for continuing to introduce us to your friends and colleagues. And that includes, of course, sharing a link to the podcast on all social media. Our audience, astonishingly, now reaches 133 countries. And that's an impact that I can honestly say I did not imagine when we launched this podcast less than two years ago. And it's entirely because of you and your recommendations and referrals. And by the way, if you could take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, you would do a great service to your fellow man. And I mean that seriously, because reviews not only help people find us, they also help people trust that the time that they're going to spend listening in is going to be well spent. So I want, of course, to thank my wonderful team of supporters, especially Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer and editor, Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you leap from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Just keep